This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today's episode is going to cover the keys of Peter and the big moment when Jesus reveals what his plan for the church is. As we will see even more in the next episode, everything has been leading up to this moment where Jesus asks his apostles, who do you say I am? But today we're going to start with Matthew's account, and next week we'll read Mark and a lot more that follows it. Peter's Confession About Jesus When Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said in reply, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly ordered his disciples to tell no one that he was the Messiah. First Prediction of the Passion From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer greatly from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. God forbid, Lord! No such thing shall ever happen to you. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle to me. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. So there it is. This is Peter's moment of great glory and his moment of great shame. There are two things to point out right away. First, when Jesus asks who people think he is, they say John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah. That's odd. Either they think that he is a type or fulfillment of these people's ministry, or more likely, they think that the actual person rose from the dead. In Luke, they say this explicitly, sharing the speculation, quotes, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life, end quotes. We see what we saw with Herod. Resurrection was in the air, and it was not uncommon to think some prophet might rise from the dead. Then Jesus asks them, but who do you say that I am? When I was a kid, I never liked it when priests or CCD teachers made a big deal out of that, about how each of us has to say who he is. I think that's probably true, and I know that there's a lot of spiritual fruit to be had there. But now I think I understand that this isn't about each of us answering that question. It's about the fact that Peter answers it. Because as we will soon find out, it turns out that yes, It is important for us to have our own answer to know Jesus personally, but following Peter's correct answer is every bit as important. And that's what happens next. Peter gives his great answer. 
You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The Messiah is a Hebrew word, and the Christ is the Greek word for the same concept. He is the anointed one, anointed priest, prophet, and king. We will see that soon at the transfiguration. And son of the living God is a phrase that starts to show that Peter is understanding at least that Jesus is more than a man. He is the son who is predicted by the book of Daniel, which was popular at that time. So Peter announces Jesus's origin, heaven, divinity, and his title, Christ Messiah. Jesus responds by announcing Peter's origin and his name and job. Now, this is not the place that Simon gets renamed Peter. Way back in the episode about Jesus selecting his band of brothers, I pointed out that it is significant that in the first chapter of his gospel, John reveals that it was in their first encounter that Jesus gave Simon a new name. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Kephas, which is translated Peter. Simon didn't earn the name of Peter the rock by professing his faith at Capernaum, and the argument doesn't stand up that says Jesus was naming his profession of faith the rock and not Peter himself. Jesus gave him that identity from day one, and with that grace, Peter eventually lived up to his new name. Anyway, here Jesus clearly means to draw attention to the importance of this new name, Kephas, or Peter in Greek. So he starts by saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Now you'll notice right away, possibly, that in the passage I just read from St. John, he was Simon, son of John. And now he's son of Jonah. Well, I know that the King James Version and others translate both this and the verse in John as Simon, son of Jonah. But I also know that most translations don't. The names are similar enough that I imagine both apply, like Tom and Thomas, or Ben and Benjamin. At any rate, I think Jesus wants to draw attention to the sign of Jonah that we just heard about in the last episode. Jonah was the reluctant prophet who had water problems and storm problems. Peter is the reluctant leader who has water problems and storm problems. Both are associated with boats. Jonah is taken away by one, and Peter floats away on one on several occasions, including after the resurrection. And Peter and Jonah are also both associated with huge numbers of conversions. Jonah converted Nineveh after he had come back from the, his trip to Sheol. Peter converted lots of people right after Jesus came back from his trip to Sheol. Jonah was weak in the extreme, and so his personal powers of persuasion could not possibly account for the results that he got. Peter, too, was weak in the extreme, and so his couldn't either. In fact, Jesus tells him what accounts for Peter's powers. Quote, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly father, Jesus says. So Peter is now being associated not with his own dad, Jonah, but with the same father that Jesus, Jonah, and Peter all share, God the Father. Next, Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. The netherworld he is talking about is the same reality as Sheol, or hell. There's a fascinating detail that I just learned about. Apparently in Jerusalem, there was a belief that the temple's foundation was a giant rock that was built over an opening that led to the land of the dead, in other words, to hell. And so the temple literally stood in the breach, blocking the powers of hell through the power of God, through the presence of God. 
And now Peter is going to be that rock? That's incredible. And it's something taken seriously in the church, where it was recently discovered, well, relatively recently, that beneath the high altar in St. Peter's Basilica is the tomb of Peter, meaning that Peter is the rock in the same sense that the foundation stone in Jerusalem was a rock. But notice what else it says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the church's mission isn't to keep a cork on the powers of hell so much as its mission is to do battle with hell. He's not saying the devil can't get at you. He's saying the devil's kingdom can't stop you when you grab back Satan's territory. This harks back to the temptation of Christ when the devil showed him that he had all the kingdoms of the world and offered them to Christ if he would just join his team. Well, now we learn that all the kingdoms of the earth will not stop Peter's church from bringing Jesus Christ's saving sacraments to the entire world. He goes on and says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, which, as we shall see, is a truly great authority that is given to Peter and his successors. And I wanted to read the end of the story today, even though we will focus on it more next time. This is the moment that Jesus reveals not just that he is the Messiah, but that the Messiah will be the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied, the man of sorrows, of whom Isaiah said, He was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering, knowing pain, like one from whom you turn your face, spurned, and we held him in no esteem. Yet it was our pain that he bore, our sufferings he endured. We thought of him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquity. He bore the punishment that makes us whole. By his wounds we were healed. Now we know what that means, but it was too much of a shock to Peter. He rejected the very idea out of hand, saying, God forbid, Lord, no such thing shall ever happen to you. Anyway, Peter is having none of it. And after being lifted to the heights as the great foundation stone of Jesus's new project, the church, Jesus slams him back down to earth with a sharp rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle to me. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. Peter learns that he is not a demigod. He is not a decision maker on a par with Jesus. He's an all too human figure who Jesus can always put in his place. So how is it possible that Jesus gave him such power, the power of the keys of the kingdom? Let's look at how the church has tried to figure that out over the years. First of all, Peter's weakness is absolutely essential to keep in mind. It helps us see that he has no authority apart from God, nor any wisdom. As G.K. Chesterton pointed out, this is why Jesus gave the keys not to the brilliant Paul or to the mystic John, but to Peter, so that it will be clear that Jesus is the real power here. What can Simon Peter add to the perfection of God? Nothing. What can the teachings of Peter add to the teaching of Jesus? Nothing. Is it ever Peter's place to add or subtract from the truth? Never. The context of the story makes it clear. This comes after the time of the Bread of Life discourse, when the apostles wanted to reject Jesus. It is after he hears that Jesus is asking them to eat his flesh and drink his blood that we get the first intimation that Judas will be wicked. We also hear Peter step up and defend Jesus in a way that echoes his statement here. In that chapter of John, Peter gives his theological model, the statement of where papal authority comes from, if you will. 
When Jesus asks if his apostles would leave him too, he said, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter's charism is to be clueless apart from Christ, and he's given power not to lord it over others, but to strengthen them, as Jesus will point out later. The early church knew exactly what it meant to say, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. Those are the gates of sin and heresy that enslave us to Satan, say the fathers of the church. Peter has the power to set us free. In 1870, the church further defined papal infallibility, which we'll look at in a second. But if what the church taught a little over 150 years ago seems far removed from what Jesus taught in the gospel, consider the words of St. Cyprian of Carthage, who was born a little over 150 years after Jesus. He wrote, quote, A primacy is given to Peter, whereby it is made clear that there is but one church and one chair. If someone does not hold fast to this unity of Peter, can he imagine that he still holds the faith? If he desert the chair of Peter upon whom the church was built, can he still be confident that he is in the church? End quote. That's a very hard question, but a very good question. It's a hard question because it seems disproportionate to give Peter, who is just a man after all, and a weak one at that, such total supreme authority. And it is a supreme authority. The First Vatican Council promulgated Pastor Eternus, Eternal Shepherd, the 1870 dogmatic constitution giving the popes, as Peter's successors, primacy of jurisdiction over the whole Church of God. By giving the pope universal jurisdiction, the Church was making clear that bishops are not beholden to national powers or national churches, but to the one Christ, the Good Shepherd, who shepherds his flock via one shepherd on earth, the Pope. The Catechism, which was first promulgated in the 1990s, said it this way, quote, The Pope, Bishop of Rome, and Peter's successor is the perpetual and visual source and foundation of the unity, both of the bishops and of the whole company of the faithful, and that he, as pastor of the entire church, has full, supreme, and universal power over the whole church, a power that he can always exercise unhindered. The Church's reason for spelling out his power this way is primarily defensive, to keep the Church free from outside interference. What Pastor Eternus teaches about papal infallibility is also defensive. It says, so that the whole flock of Christ might be kept away from the poisonous food of error. That 1870 Vatican I decree continues, quote, when the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra from the chair in his teaching office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians and defines a doctrine concerning faith and morals to be held by the whole church, he possesses by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter that infallibility which the divine redeemer willed, end quote. That teaching is still in full force. When the Pope dogmatically defines something, teaching it ex cathedra from the chair, Catholics believe that the Pope infallibly teaches the truth. Pope Pius IX in the 19th century taught ex cathedra from the chair that Catholics must believe in the Immaculate Conception, the teaching that Mary from her moment of conception was free from sin. And Pope Pius XII in the 20th century taught ex cathedra that we must accept the doctrine of the Assumption, the dogma that Mary was brought body and soul into heaven. Nearly 100 years after the Vatican I proclamation, 
the Second Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution of the Church, Lumen Gentium, didn't change that at all, but if anything, doubled down on it and extended it, saying, quote, Religious submission of mind and will must be shown in a special way to the authentic magisterium of the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra, end quote. Let me say that again, because a lot of people haven't heard it. According to Vatican II, quote, religious submission of mind and will must be shown in a special way to the authentic magisterium of the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra, end quote. That is a lot of authority in the hands of one weak man, an authority that we may understand in cases like Gregory the Great or the great John Paul II, but it is a hard pill to swallow when the same authority is given to some of the weak popes we have seen in the church's history, including the fishermen who denied him three times, St. Peter. However, just as Isaiah describes how the Messiah must suffer, he also describes the power of Peter God makes it very clear who is in charge in Isaiah chapter 22. God is. Thus says the Lord to Shebna, master of the palace, I will thrust you out from your office and pull you down from your station. On that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and gird him with your sash and give over to him your authority. He even gives what sounds like papal authority when he continues, quote, I will place the key of the house of David on Eliakim's shoulder. What he opens, no one shall shut. What he shuts, no one shall open." End quote. When the great Protestant commentator William Barclay writes about Peter's keys, he cites exactly this case of Eliakim and sees exactly what the church sees. Quote, what Jesus is saying to Peter is that in the days to come, he will be the steward of the kingdom. End quote. Anyone who has watched Return of the King has seen an example of a steward's authority. Denethor, the steward of Gondor, that giant white city in the last movie, is a very weak man, corrupted by power, in cahoots with the enemy, and eating grapes while his son goes out to be slaughtered by his opponents. Nonetheless, he has the power to bind people to his service and to send soldiers to their death. But his authority is limited by the true sovereigns. When the king does indeed return, which is not a spoiler alert because it's in the title of the movie. Gandalf dramatically tells Denethor that authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. Well, Jesus Christ makes Peter that kind of steward of his kingdom and protects him from doing harm to his teaching, even while he allows him full authority to do lots of other things, even unwise things. Jesus will say something at the ascension that remains true today. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he will say, and tell us that we too will see the return of our king in the same way as you have seen him going into heaven. Any pope has to realize that this day will come and fear it if he doesn't do as he should. But think of what the other apostles must have thought when they heard Jesus name Peter the rock. This is clearly conferring a high degree of authority on the fishermen. Says the Catechism, Peter's power to bind and loose connotes the authority to, to absolve sins, to pronounce doctrinal judgments, and to make disciplinary decisions in the church." End quote. But it isn't just about Peter. The Vatican's homiletic directory says, quote, the homilist must show that scripture's language is meant to apply to all of us, end quote. 
This is one reading the Church has very directly applied to us. Because, just like St. Cyprian believed in the 200s, we believe in the 2000s that the successor to Peter is given this authority. And if the apostles had a hard time following Peter, we all know Catholics who have had a hard time following our own popes, including Pope Francis. Really? We have to follow this very human leader in order to be part of this supernatural church? Yes, we do. I will once again repeat the words of Vatican II, and let's all imagine for a moment that they also apply to Pope Francis. Religious submission of mind and will must be shown in a special way to the authentic magisterium of the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra. If that's hard to take, I want to point some things out. First of all, the uncanny ways Pope Francis is like St. Peter in the best and worst ways. For example, CNN and others complain that Pope Francis is, quotes, obsessed with the devil, end quotes, always talking about Satan. But it was a letter of St. Peter in the New Testament that says, your opponent, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, end quote. Francis was criticized for comparing the behavior of the media to animal behavior. He said they were guilty of coprophilia and coprophagia, which is when dogs eat or roll around in their own feces. It upset a lot of people. But Peter was the first in one of his letters to compare sin to how, quote, the dog returns to its own vomit, end quote, and, quote, a bathed sow returns to wallowing in the mire, end quote. In the early church, crowds loved Peter. In Acts 5.15, they love him so much that they line the streets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any of them. Well, they do the same thing today. Ruth Smart of Brooklyn spoke to Associated Press about seeing Pope Francis in New York's Central Park. Quote, as he passed by, you felt a cool, refreshing peace, as if he were spreading a huge blanket of peace through the crowd. Even though the crowd exploded in a roar, it was pure joy, end quote. People also complain that Pope Francis stresses too much how he wants to accompany sinners with love. But it was Peter who made this shocking statement in his first letter, quote, love covers up a multitude of sins, end quote. It also annoys people that Pope Francis is harsh when it comes to economic sins. Pope Francis once said, quote, the proud, rich, and powerful will end up plunging into the eternal abyss of solitude, which is hell, end quote. But St. Peter was also abrasively harsh in the same way against economic sins. Of Simon the magician, he said, may your money perish with you. And he condemned Ananias and Sapphira to death just for sneakily keeping money to themselves instead of giving it to the church. And of course, both popes have made some enormous mistakes. St. Paul said he opposed Peter to his face over significant issues about the, how the church treats Jewish law. Today, cardinals have sought correction from Francis also, bringing the highly formal dubia to him to seek clarity about doctrinal issues. Of course, other popes were so sharply opposed that Christian leaders left the church entirely over them, especially in the case of the Reformation and the Great Schism, but in many other cases also. The problem is so significant, it can make us ask, why on earth did Jesus build the church on Peter and Francis? As St. Paul put it, echoing 
Isaiah, and Job. How inscrutable are his judgments and how unsearchable his ways. Absolutely. What God does doesn't always make sense. But this is what he did here. Our job is to say with Peter, Master, to whom shall we go? And you are Christ, Son of the living God. Like I said, it's only when Peter admits that he is himself in no way the answer to the world's problems, Christ is, that Jesus makes him the rock. This subservience to God is the key to the ministry of Peter. Jesus drives this point home after the resurrection when he sums up Peter's job in three words, feed my sheep. This is the way Pope Francis has described his office, not as a wielder of heavy authority, but as the bearer of a heavy responsibility. Pope Francis said, quote, The same Peter who confessed Jesus Christ says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I will follow you, but let us not speak of the cross. This has nothing to do with it. He says, I'll follow you on other ways that do not include the cross. When we walk without the cross, when we build without the cross, and when we profess Christ without the cross, we are not disciples of the Lord. We are worldly. We are bishops, priests, cardinals, popes, but not disciples of the Lord." End quote. That's what we'll be looking at next time as we look at how everything changes for the apostles and for Jesus from this point on. The midpoint, the hinge of the story, where Jesus goes from a mystery man doing good to those he bumps into in the maze that is our world, to the Son of God headed relentlessly toward Jerusalem to give himself to be our food and to die for us in order to draw our ordinary lives up and into his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.